see you all here this morning. Uh, my name is David Lundberg, and I'm one of several deacons here at uh, Grace Christian Fellowship. And I got to say, it's truly an honor to, to gather with you all. And, and it's an honor and a privilege for me to be able to go through the book of Mark with you all uh, here in chapter 2. Um, so if you will, please pray with me one more time. Ask uh, God for help, and then we'll dive into our text. Father, Lord, I, um, I just humbly admit, God, that I stand up here as um, just a mere, a mere man, a mere mortal man, Lord, and I recognize the great weight that carries um, by teaching your word to your people. Lord, these are your people. These are your sheep. Lord, help me to be a messenger this morning for you, to get out of your way so that you can speak, so that you can roar like a lion to these people. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we can safely worship together as brothers and sisters in this building without fear of consequence legal repercussions, death, persecution. Lord, help us to take advantage of that this morning. Open our ears to your word. Give us super hearing. Lord, and um, open our eyes to see that Jesus is here amongst us this morning. We thank you for your son. We thank you that his death, burial, and resurrection has, has taken place, that we can celebrate in that this morning. Lord, help us to soak in this, to enjoy your word, and to enjoy this, this message this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you've lived in Spokane for at least even a couple years, you'll start to get accustomed to the crazy windstorms that we can have. I mean, they can be huge and leave quite a mess behind. They typically happen at night for some reason, too, when you're trying to sleep. And afterwards, you wake up, you can go outside, and you can see everything from patio umbrellas to six-foot vinyl fence sections to even trampolines scattered all across the neighborhood. Probably the most common thing you'll see after Spokane windstorm are roofing shingles not really being where they're supposed to be. Now, if you have a newer roof, uh, you're probably likely to avoid this unfortunate event. But if your roof happens to be older, then it's going to be open season on your shingles. Now, after the windstorm passage and all the damage is assessed, you're likely to see people out there damaging or, or replacing all the damage that had happened from the windstorm using everything from tarps to tar paper to uh, old shingles they're picking up off the ground. <laughs> Don't recommend that to uh, new shingles, trying to kind of graft them into the old. But no matter what they seem to use as a patch, you can almost always expect to see a roofing crew show up only a few heavy rainstorms later to replace the entire roof. And this really shouldn't come as a surprise to us, right? Because patches are really only meant to be a temporary fix. I mean, a patch could last for months, could last for years, but at the end of the day, it's still just temporary. Now, patches do have their purpose, but sometimes a patch just doesn't cut it. And the best option to replace the entire thing is just to completely 
replace it with something brand new. Well, this idea is similar to what we're going to be extracting out of our text this morning. That the main area of focus is that Jesus has come not to patch the old, but to replace with the new. That Jesus has come not to patch the old, but to replace it with the new. Now, already you may be wondering if I prepared a sermon for the wrong text this morning, because if you look in your Bibles, you're likely to see a section header that says a question about fasting. Now, unless you use a KJV or a New American Standard Bible transition, translation, then uh, you can go grab a coffee and take a little break, because you're not going to see any headers in there at all. But hopefully I'm not going to burst anyone's bubbles here, because if you've looked ahead at our text and you came into church excited this morning eager to learn about the theology of fasting and have all of your fasting questions answered, well, I'm unfortunately not going to be scratching your itch this morning. And just a fun little Bible factoid for you here. This is free of charge. Excluding the Psalms, section headers like these were never part of the original biblical transcripts. They were later added by translators to help the reader by dividing the sections, the chapter sections, into more of like digestible chunks. Now, this doesn't mean that our section header this morning is wrong or heretical by any means. It just means that if I were to use these verses solely just to preach about the topic of fasting, I'd be missing the point of the text. And ironically, missing the point happens to be a main theme of our text this morning. So let's go ahead and read our text. We're in Mark Chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. If we zoom out on chapter 2 a bit here, we'll see that a larger picture is being painted. That a question about fasting isn't the only question that's being asked here. And we're only 18 verses into chapter 2 and there's already been four questions asked already. After Jesus forgives the paralytic sins in verse 7, the Pharisees ask, Why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sin but God alone? After Jesus was found feasting with Levi and the other tax collectors, they ask in verse 9, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In our text this morning, Jesus is found celebrating and essentially throwing a party with his disciples. And the Jews are, are fasting. And the Pharisees ask, why do the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples aren't fasting? Lastly, if we look forward to verse 24, Jesus is seen plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath, and they ask, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So what is going on here in chapter 2? Well, Jeff mentioned a couple weeks ago that this chapter 
is transitional, that the mood is starting to shift here as Jesus continues with his ministry, as he continues to interact with people, preaching his word, and doing these miraculous things. See, Jesus is on the move, and he's creating quite the buzz around town. He's growing in popularity, which in turn is starting to create some negative attention, opposition from the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. In fact, I believe that we can deduce that the Pharisees weren't really looking for an answer out of genuine curiosity, but they have more of an agenda here. They're trying to convey a point that Jesus is wrong. That this really wasn't a question, rather, it's more in line with a severe criticism towards Jesus. How can you be a serious religious teacher when you're doing all these things that aren't in line with what the elite religious leaders do? With what we work hard to do? You're a fraud. The more Jesus taught and lived amongst these religious leaders, the more apparent it started to become that he wasn't like them. Like at all. It was becoming clear that Jesus was not compatible with Judaism, that he didn't come to captain the ranks of Judaism or even to reform their ways. He came to usher in something completely new, the kingdom of God. And the irony here is that those who have been working so hard their entire lives to see God, to be with God, they failed to recognize him when he was literally right in front of them the entire time. They missed him. Maybe uh, some of you in this room can relate to this a little bit. Perhaps you feel like you've been working really hard at this Christian thing. You've been doing a lot of reading lately. You're in discipleship groups, Bible studies. You're doing things that Christians do, but it feels empty, rote, mechanical. Like you're missing the sweetness of Jesus that so many other Christians always seem to talk about. Well, you wouldn't be alone, as it surprisingly can be pretty easy for Christians to miss Jesus. Just as easy it is for non-believers to fill their lives up so full with stuff that they don't really have room for Jesus or even care to fit him in, well, us believers are apt to do the same exact thing. We can get so focused in on the details of Christianity, our life, routines, that we begin to just miss Jesus completely. It's happening today, and it has a long history of happening in the past. Now, I believe some historical context would be helpful for us here, so bear with me. Um, this will help us to really grasp what is going on in our verse. So we're going to take a quick look at fasting, um, specifically why fasting is part of the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. We're also going to take a look at the Jewish, traditional Jewish wedding celebrations as well. Now, the traditions and rituals of Judaism... They date back to nearly 4,000 years ago. And even when Jesus was here on earth, Judaism had already had a vast history of deep roots, traditions, ceremonies. And fasting had become one of them as it was part of the Mosaic law for them to fast. But this requirement from the law was only to fast once a year. During the holiest day of the year, known as Yom Kippur, it was a very special day, the Day of Atonement. Here, fasting was done to express great grief and self-denial over the sins of all the people. And if you're here this morning, you're not familiar what fasting is. It, it essentially is just abstaining from food and drink as a religious exercise. 
Now, outside of this requirement, fasting was still done as a legitimate spiritual discipline by the, by the Israelites. You can see it all over the Old Testament. It was common for people to fast in conjunction with things like prayer, over things like great sorrow, repentance of sin, self-denial as a means to worship God, or just simply done as a pursuit to further seek God. Yet our sin nature comes and joins the party and does what it does best by turning something genuine into something that's empty ritual for selfish gain. Well, this is what fasting had become for the Pharisees here when Jesus was on the scene. A requirement for fasting once a year turned into a requirement to fast twice a week. But not whenever you wanted. No, no. Everyone had to do it on specific days of the week. Thursdays, Mondays and Thursdays were the fasting days. But Jesus and his disciples weren't participating. Look with me here at uh, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came to him. People came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? See, these empty rituals outside of what the law required, mind you, provided an opportunity for Pharisees to quantify holiness, right? To create some, something like a righteousness barometer that they could use to measure themselves up against or maybe use it to judge others for missing the mark but feel great about how well they were doing against the barometer. Their focus on God had become completely recalibrated to a focus on the law and themselves, self-generated merit. The more requirements that were constructed, the better, as these created even more opportunities for them to outwardly boast in their manufactured holiness. Look at how good I am. Think of it like, merit badges on a sash. You know, if you have a sash with a couple merit badges, it's pretty good. I mean, you're, you're trying. Or what if there were only like five badges you could get? Well, sooner than later, everyone would have all the five badges and you would all rank the same and you would all look the same. But what if someone had a sash in which you couldn't even see the color of it because it was so crowded, just jam-packed with merit badges? I mean, imagine him walking into the room. You wouldn't help but think, whoa, this guy's a stud, right? I mean, like, he's on another level. Big deal alert. <laughs> Here the Pharisees, they're examining Jesus, probably to see how they stack up against this popular new teacher who's getting all this attention. But something's different. See, he doesn't have a sash with badges on display. In fact, he and his disciples are just chilling. They're throwing a party. And Jesus tells his disciples, you know what, just check those sashes at the door. In fact, just throw them away as they just feast and enjoy being in God's presence. You don't need your merit badges. You're here with me, Jesus. You have me. Unfortunately, this sort of thing can carry on throughout Christianity today if we're being honest with ourselves. We're probably all guilty of measuring up our sashes and our badges from time to time. Or maybe judging our brothers and sisters by whether they do certain things or don't do certain things that aren't commanded or required in the Bible, but we think of them as the better moral choice. See, the content of our questions will look different from what the Pharisees were asking, but they can contain the same exact motives. 
How can she be serious about her faith when she doesn't even read her Bible every day? How can they take a night off from home group with no legitimate reason and be committed Christians? How can he drink alcohol or use tobacco products and think that he is setting himself apart from the world? How can she be honoring God and her family if she's working outside of the home? How dare she? How can that home group leader insist on wearing sweatpants and slippers during home group? <laughs> Guilty. Come to Lundberg home group if you're all about sweats and <laughs> slippers. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we must be very, very vigilant here. Let's put our sashes away and be careful not to fall into the same mindset that characterized these Pharisees who were clearly opponents of Jesus. And you can imagine how insulting this was to the religious leaders to see Jesus and his disciples not following Judaism's esteemed rituals. I mean, they worked so hard to display their merit all their life and actually believed that it set them apart from other people from the world and that they were acceptable in God's sight. We see evidences of this in Luke 18 from the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector should be on our screen, but let's read Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Can you imagine the audacity of a Pharisee praying to God himself, saying, I thank you, God, that I am not like Jesus. Thank you for not making me like Jesus, who eats with tax collectors and sinners, and he doesn't even fast twice a week. Here they're expecting Jesus to conform to their ways of living. They're using their lives and their religious exercises that they've created outside of God's work as the benchmark for righteousness. The response that Jesus gives to the question makes it clear that they are the ones out of line, that they are wrong, and they're missing the point. So let's take a look at Jesus' response here in verse uh, 19 and 20. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus sort of pivots here, creating a wedding scene to answer the, the Pharisees' question. And here he portrays himself as the bridegroom, and he portrays his disciples as the wedding guests. And many scholars agree that during this conversation that we're, we're witnessing, Jesus and his disciples were essentially throwing a party. They're feasting while the Pharisees are busy fasting. 
So between what's really going on here and during this conversation and this wedding illustration that Jesus uses, we see that Jesus is conveying that something very special is being celebrated. That now is the time for joyful celebration, not miserable fasting. And this takes us to our first point. Celebrate because God is here with you. Celebrate because God is here with you. In the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, weddings were times of great celebration. I almost wish I could live back in these days just to attend one of these things. <laughs> I mean, the celebration could last up to seven days, right? Like, boss, I'm taking time off work because I'm going to a wedding for seven days. It's going to be awesome. And there'd be an abundance of wine and food and wine <laughs> and food and singing and dancing and wine. It was expected that the wedding guests would share in the joy, that they would take part in all these festivities. I mean, does this seem like an appropriate time to be fasting and miserable, gloomy? See, Jesus clues the Pharisees into the importance of him being here by identifying himself as the bridegroom. And this is very significant because it's another sort of under-the-radar the way that Jesus is making a claim of deity, that he is God himself. And the Pharisees, they should have picked up on this because the term bridegroom was used in the Old Testament uh, quite a bit. And when it was, it always referred to the Lord. That's all caps, L-O-R-D. And the bride was always used to depict his people, the Israelites. By calling himself the bridegroom... Jesus is declaring that he is the Lord and that the Lord has come to be with his people. Therefore, it is a time to feast and celebrate, not fast. So being sorrowful and fasting when the Lord was in their presence, it didn't fit the occasion. It was totally inappropriate. It would be like wearing black to a wedding or white to a funeral or buying your wife an exercise bike for Christmas. I mean, can you imagine your... At a wedding, you're enjoying fantastic drinks, you're eating amazing food, which no doubt the couple paid a lot of money for. And you kind of see some people that are all dirty and their hair's all messed up and they're kind of moping around the place, trying to clue everyone into the fact that they're fasting. You're in the buffet line and someone's kind of sniffing your plate a little bit awkwardly and like, man, are those au gratin potatoes? Oh, I love au gratin potatoes but I can't eat them because I'm fasting. I sure would love to dance, but all I can do is sit down because I'm so weak from hunger. You see, I'm fasting. Someone's got to pay homage to the Lord, am I right? They ding the glass with a spoon to propose a toast, and they grab the mic, and they say, you know, as much as I'd like to propose a toast to the happy couple, I can't because I'm fasting, and I can't do toast. <laughs> this is why we don't have two services. By the way, come on, you guys, that was good. Because I can't do toast. I made that up, by the way. I didn't even steal that off the internet. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is absurd, right? It's completely missing the point of what it means to honor someone you care about on their special day. This behavior, it really helps to provide context around verses like Matthew 6, uh, 16 through 18, where Jesus he actually gives us some guidance for fasting, kind of the what to and what not to do. So here in Matthew 6, 
uh, 16 through 18, it says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. But truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. He's saying their reward was to get noticed by people, right? They've already received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. So we see that Jesus isn't anti-fasting. In fact, what he's saying here almost provides an expectation that we will fast from time to time. He says, when you fast, don't do it in a way that draws attention to yourself. In fact, you should look like your normal everyday self so that way it will be genuine and truly be honoring to God. Well, we also see in our text that those disciples were not fasting while he was with them, that they would be very soon. This verse is the first time that Jesus foretells of his death here in Mark. And it refers to a sudden removal or a, a being snatched away violently. That the celebration will be going on, but it will come to an unexpected halt as Jesus is violently snatched away. And then will come time for fasting. Joy will turn into great sorrow because the Lord will be seized and he will be sent to his crucifixion. So what does this mean for us today? Did Jesus leave for good after being snatched away? Is now a time that we should all be fasting and waiting for his physical return? No, Jesus had more to say about this as he sought to prepare his disciples for what was coming. And I love this section header. It says, your sorrow will turn into joy. It's in uh, John 16, 19 through 22. says, Jesus, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Well, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Church, I have some great news to share with you this morning. And while it's wonderful news, we can miss it. So pay attention. Jesus is here. He's alive. He's, he's reigning. He won the battle against Satan. He's defeated sin. He's working amongst all of us here while we're on earth, and he's preparing a place for us in heaven as I speak. Jesus is here among us. But don't miss him. Don't get so caught up in the details of Christianity so much that you fail to recognize that Jesus is the main focus. He's the star of the show. He's the hero. Not you. Not me. Don't get caught up in the day-to-day -day grind of life so much that you forget where your hope lies. Don't get so caught up in your imperfections and your failures that you forget that Jesus went to the cross for them. That your biggest problem has already been taken care of. And don't get so caught up in empty rituals that can numb 
the joy that you can have and cripple your ability to celebrate God, to celebrate what God has done and what he's doing now in your life. And I think it can be helpful to reevaluate often why we do what we do when it comes to being a Christian. I like to do this in my own personal life sometimes and challenge myself. Why am I up here preaching? Why am I going to church? Why do I pray at night? Is it ritualistic? Is it mechanical? Or do I really feel like I'm having a conversation with the living God? See, a great definition of legalism that I think is helpful here, or the idea of empty ritual explains it this way. When what you do becomes more important than why you do it, you're falling into legalism or empty ritual. When what you do becomes more important than why you do it, you're falling into legalism or empty ritual. And I get that. Life has to have its routines in order to prevent complete meltdown and chaos. But be careful not to drag your faith into the machine of routine. That routines like church service, home group, personal study time and prayer, that they don't lose their luster and turn into empty ritual where Jesus is absent. And perhaps you're wondering, well, what does this practically look like to celebrate that Jesus is here? It doesn't have to be a literal, huge, elaborate party with feasting. But if you throw one, dial me up. I'll be there. Celebrating Jesus is essentially remembering that he is here. That he is the purpose of your rituals and your day-to-day life. That he is sovereignly reigning over all things. It could be as simple as taking time to reflect on specific ways he's helped you out this week as you drive to work. Or maybe it's sitting down with a spouse or a family member, taking time to pray together and sharing where you've been seeing him work lately with each other. Reflecting on his gospel. Celebrating Jesus can also take the form of surrender, hope, and faith during really hard times. Through the bad news from doctor visits, family quarrels, and all the other curveballs that life loves to throw our way. See, Jesus is here with us, and he, he says that our hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy away. We should be enjoying sweet communion with him, enjoying his presence, finding confidence in his grace, and resting in his peace. We have reason to celebrate because God is here. In our text last week, Jesus says that he has come not to call the righteous, meaning the ones that don't think that they need to be saved, but he's come to call sinners. He's come to call sinners because he has a remedy for them that can set them free from the bondage of sin. He's come to give new life. And this is our last point. Jesus is incompatible with the old, replacing it with the new. Jesus is incompatible with the old, replacing it with the new. In this last section of our text, Jesus closes the discussion with the Pharisees by giving us two illustrations. Let's look at uh, verses 21 and 22 together. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. 
See, this first illustration has to do with an old garment that's in need of repair. Now, <laughs> I'm not super experienced in sewing patches on clothes because I come from a generation that not only loves holes in their jeans, but they'll pay extra money to have even more holes put in them. But I mean, it makes sense what Jesus is getting at here, right? Like essentially an old piece of clothing, it's already nice and broken in. In fact, this is why I love to shop at Value Village. Because when I find shirts there, I can avoid the heartbreak of finding that perfect shirt that I love so much, that I adore, fits me perfectly, but then it shrinks three washes later and I have to hand it down to my wife. She says it's kind of a me problem, but I say it's a washing machine problem. <laughs> That's why I love Value Village. You're already pre-shrunk, ready to go. So what Jesus is getting at here, essentially, is that if you sew new cloth as a patch on, on, old, on an old garment or an old shirt, once a little heat's applied or it gets washed, that patch is going to shrink. It's going to rip those stitches out, and it'll just result in a larger tear in the garment. It's not the right repair. And his point in this passage is that the kingdom of God is, is incompatible with Judaism. Jesus doesn't fit into Judaism. He's not a patch for Judaism or any other religious system or kingdom. They don't go together. The Jesus' new gospel of repentance and forgiveness, it can't be connected to the old traditions of self-righteousness and ritual. See, Jesus is not a patch. He's a replacement. If we were to reduce this point down even further, it's really a contrast between two opposing things, grace and law. Justification by grace alone is incompatible with justification through works of the law. They don't go together. And I know it can be strange to hear or think of a, a phrase like, Jesus is exclusive. Jesus is exclusive. Because we know that salvation is for anyone who believes, right? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. This is gospel truth, amen and amen. But when it comes down to Jesus and other religious systems, other kingdoms, they're incompatible. Contrary to what the bumper sticker says, they cannot coexist. See, Jesus doesn't fit into the system of Judaism. He doesn't fit into the system of Mormonism. Jesus doesn't fit into Islam. He doesn't fit into Jehovah's Witnesses, Roman Catholicism, or any other system that attempts to patch in the name of Jesus Christ on top of other religious stuff. His kingdom is exclusive. It's available to anyone. Don't miss this. It's available to the corrupt politician or the tax collector, as we learned last week. It's available to the Mormon. It's available to the Jehovah's Witness. It's available to you and me. But it can never be a part of or mix into other kingdoms. And that includes your own kingdom. Meaning that Jesus is available to you, but he can't simply just be added into your old life where you're the king and you call the shots. If we're to have Jesus, we need to abandon our old kingdom and take a hold of his. Look with me at verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, nowadays we use large stainless steel tanks or barrels to ferment wine, but back then they would use the skin of goats. 
And if you're familiar with the fermentation process, it produces gases that cause expansion. And that's where these goat skins work beautifully because they had elasticity. They could stretch and make room for these gases as the fermentation process took place. Once it was completed, you couldn't reuse an old wineskin, though, because it wouldn't be able to handle a completely new fermentation process. It was already stretched out. It would dry up and crack. If you tried to do it, it would just burst once that new process began and those gases started accumulating. Well, the second illustration conveys the same meaning as the first, that you can't mix religious rituals that are old with new faith in Jesus. But it kind of gives us another angle that poses a good question for us to end on this morning. Are you expecting new life by simply mixing Jesus into your kingdom? Or are you willing to abandon your kingdom for a new one? Are you expecting new wine to be made in your old wineskin? If your expectation of Jesus is that he can just be a bolt onto your life, maybe help in a few areas by doing damage control, patching a couple areas that you tear, so you can just kind of mosey along your way, that you can simply mix him into a worldly lifestyle and he will just gladly tag along. Well, see, Jesus commands that we follow him. Notice we don't see anywhere in scripture where he ever asks if he can follow us. When people take Jesus in to follow them, to conform to their rituals, their religious practices, it will always end off worse than it started the wine skins will eventually burst and there will be no wine at all. See, Christ came to replace the old with something completely new and this is relevant to all of us in this room this morning. He's here to replace our old lives, to give us new ones, new life. And we all need this new life. The gospel tells us that our sin nature from birth as, is a result of this, that we all fall short of being able to keep God's law. We can't do it. We cannot do it. And we deserve judgment as a result. This natural inclination to sin, it, it creates a whirlwind of problems and hurt as we crawl through life. And no doubt that all of us can look back like walking outside after a big windstorm and see the debris that is left behind by living a life of sin. Broken relationships, pain, Divorce, abuse, death, physical complications, and the list can go on and on. Like an old roof after a harsh windstorm, the destruction is far too severe for a patch to simply fix it. In fact, our lives can't be repaired. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking that all you want out of Jesus is for him to fix and bless a couple areas of your life so you could be on your way, you're missing the truth of the gospel that says that this isn't possible. Jesus isn't interested in fixing your alcoholism only or only fixing your pornography addiction or your anger or your physical ailments. He wants all of you. He wants to replace your entire life with something new. All of it. The gospel tells us that the root of our sin nature comes from within our hearts, and it can't be cured. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's beyond cure. It's desperately sick. 
Mark 7, 20 through 23 says that what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. See, our biggest problem is not the external. It's not outside of us. It's not your job. It's not your nagging wife. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's internal. We're all born with a defective heart. And the Bible says that our hearts are like cold, lifeless rocks that can't be patched or resuscitated. That if we're ever to have any hope of being saved from this life of sin, it literally is going to require a miracle. We need a brand new heart. We need new life. And church, Jesus is here right now, and he is able to do it. He's able to make sweet wine out of your life because he provides you the fresh new wine skin that you need. And perhaps you're new to all of this and this morning, and you're not quite sure what you think of Jesus or who the real Jesus is. I mean, you've heard a lot about him. You've done a lot of research on him. You've talked with other people from different religions who identify with Jesus but seem to have differing opinions on exactly how he fits into their religious systems. Well, if this is you, I would encourage you to see the gospel rightly this morning, that he is the Lord. And he is incompatible with other religious systems, including your own. He came to establish his own exclusive kingdom. Jesus Christ alone saves. He alone saves. And he can give you the new heart that you desperately need. This new life will replace your worn out, stretched thin, used up life that you have today. Pray to him this morning that he will do this for you. Repent of your sins and follow Christ today. Well, maybe you're sitting out there and you've been a Christian for a while now, but you're still needing to pull out the sash, put it on, and take a look at it from time to time. You need to count your merit badges just to make sure you're still tracking well with God. Whether you need the sash to remind yourself that you're still worth saving, that you're working hard enough to earn God's favor, or just to measure yourself up against other Christians. If you only take away one thing from this message this morning, please take away this. You can leave your sashes and your merit badges at the door because grace is here. You don't have to prove yourself anymore because Jesus is here. Where Judaism could only offer a false sense of righteousness through works, Christ has replaced it with something completely new and foreign to the Pharisees. Grace. And it could be foreign to us even today. Common definition of grace is that Grace is unmerited favor. I personally prefer God's favor toward the unworthy. Grace is God's favor toward the unworthy. B.B. Warfield says that grace is free sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. I personally, I just, I think it helps to just rip the band-aid off when it comes to grips with this reality. That we are unworthy to be saved by God. We could never earn it. We could never deserve it. 
If this is still a struggle for you to accept, then continue to stare at it and wrestle with it until you can because embracing this truth is what makes the gospel shine so brightly. It's what makes the gospel so precious to us. If it helps, here's some other ways it could be said. That grace is God's favor toward the ineligible, the undeserving, the unsuitable, the unqualified. So I don't care if you have 10 sashes jam-packed with thousands of merit badges that you earn here on earth. That is useless in light of the requirement to be in God's kingdom, which requires 100% perfection, purity. So why are we still looking to our sashes for affirmation, for comfort, for assurance when Jesus is here? The gospel tells us that the only solution to our problem is God. My favorite two words in all of scripture, but God. You see, Jesus was willing to show up to die in our place so that God could forgive us and bless us abundantly with this new life. Similar to how inappropriate it would be to fast during a wedding celebration, how useless and inappropriate would it be to be fully clothed from head to toe in Christ's righteousness and then try to slip on our little sash on top of that with our little cute merit badges. It would be pointless. Just think about that. You're wearing the robes of Christ, and you're trying to put on your little self-earned merit badges over that. Leave your sashes at the door and celebrate because Jesus has come, not to patch the old, but to replace it with the new. These two parables illustrate the fact that you can't mix your old ways of life with new faith in Jesus. So if you're going to follow Christ, you can't expect to pull him into your kingdom. Expect him to live under your reign and your rituals and serve you. The call to follow Christ is a call to abandon the old life and embrace the new life that Christ freely and graciously gives. To serve his kingdom. To serve him as Lord. And one last thing before we end. Please don't hear me saying that new life in Christ means that the Christian lives a perfect life free of any sin. It's not what we're saying here. In fact, this defeats the whole purpose. It defeats the whole purpose of what it means to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, Right? Remember, the focus is not perfection, it's direction. Which direction are you walking? Are you going with Jesus? Are you following him? Is your heart directed towards the things of God, his people, his church, his kingdom? Or are you directed back to your old life? Is your heart pointed in the direction of your old kingdom where your ultimate desire is to be on the throne and expect to still just identify with Jesus. Well, Jesus has come not to patch the old, but to replace it with the new. Let's celebrate this gospel truth this week that by grace alone, Jesus gave up his life so that we may jettison ours. We can leave it behind and take hold of his sinless, perfect life. We get to remove our old, ratty, torn clothes and put on the new robe of Christ in which we get to stand before God who is well pleased with us because he is so pleased with his son. 
New wine is for fresh wineskins, which he freely gives, but he cannot make new wine out of old, worn-out wineskins. If you're part of Christ's kingdom this morning, church, then you have much to celebrate, much to celebrate. I'd like to end uh, reading 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18 all together. Uh, we got it up there, yeah. Let's read this all together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray.